Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. On behalf of our senior pastor, Mark Knuckles, and the entire congregation, I'd like to welcome you to St. Paul Lutheran Church. We pray that your time at this year's Texas District Theological Convocation will enrich and enhance your service to our Lord and His Kingdom. One of the things that they neglect to mention in the seminary recruiting materials was that one year, one week, and one day after you deliver your first sermon in the office of the Holy Ministry, you may be given the opportunity to preach before an assembly of many other fellow pastors, virtually all of whom are far more experienced than you are. Furthermore, this service will be part of a theological convocation in which the main topic is preaching. And to top it all off, in addition to members of the district leadership and staff being present, did we also happen to mention that the two primary presenters at the convocation would be the academic dean from the seminary you just graduated from and a professor that holds a chair in homiletics at your sister seminary? But hey, no pressure. <laughs> At least I do not have to do it in my hometown, in front of all the people that have known me for years and who watched me grow up. That's the situation in which Jesus finds himself in our gospel lesson from Luke 4 this evening. Following his own baptism, he'd been led out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After that, St. Luke only gives us two brief verses to account for Jesus' ministerial activities prior to this episode in Nazareth. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Then Jesus is back home, in the synagogue in which he had grown up. Local boy makes good is the expected headline of the day. Handed the scroll of Isaiah, perhaps they want to give him a chance to hit one clear out of the park. After all, who couldn't do a great job with Isaiah, right? If Isaiah is the fifth gospel as we sometimes refer to it, then it's clear that that's the only one of those documents which would have been available to those early first century Jews. Jesus doesn't disappoint at all. Reading from what we know today as chapter 61 of Isaiah, he gives a powerful statement about freedom, about the granting of great blessings, which would seem to meet a great many people's physical and emotional needs. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If it were anyone else but Jesus speaking, we might say that he had a flair for the dramatic. After reading these words, Jesus rolls up the scroll, hands it back, and sits down without a word. We're told that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And isn't that ironic, considering what happens later on in the story? Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. 
Unfortunately, they weren't fixed there because they viewed Jesus as the author and perfecter of their faith, as the writer of Hebrews would encourage several decades later. But fixed on Jesus they were, and he opens his commentary on this passage not with isagogic information, but with a claim of divine selection, that in the reading of this important prophetic passage from the Scriptures, he was fulfilling the prophecy. In fact, that he was a prophet himself. Yet they don't take offense at this claim. In fact, the opposite is true. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Then Jesus began speaking again. And it becomes clear that he's not there to be a crowd pleaser. In the course of just a couple of paragraphs, he turns their favorable comments and marveling minds to condemnation and fury. They drive him from their synagogue and out of their town. And if they'd had their way, they would have driven him right off the edge of the earth and from life itself. All because his words to them, words not said in anger, but simply of truth, gave them offense. Yet it wasn't Jesus' time to die, so he passed through the mob and took his message of law and gospel elsewhere. Why didn't Jesus just leave well enough alone, we might ask? He had all of those people right there in the palm of his hand, hanging on his every word. Isn't that what proclaiming God's message is all about? Aren't we supposed to capture hearts and minds, telling them the good news about the salvation that God has prepared? How can we do that if we offend people? The fact is, if we are emotionally healthy, we all want to be liked deep down. Pitiable and sad is the person who intentionally seeks to be at odds with others, to have difficult relationships, or to be rejected or despised. Yet even more pitied are those who strive to maintain cordial relations with others at the expense of their integrity, or worse still, at the cost of the integrity of God's Word. So, should Jesus have left well enough alone that day in Nazareth? Thankfully for us, Jesus never leaves well enough alone, whether in Nazareth or in Jerusalem, in Texas or in our very own lives. He knows that nothing is ever well enough to be left alone. Because when you and I are left on our own, we're going to goof things up. We'll take the easy path. We'll look for a shortcut or a compromise. We'll soft-sell things so as not to make waves, to give offense, or to create a confrontation. Sometimes we do those things when we're dealing with others, as husbands, as parents, as friends, even sometimes as pastors. And often we'll even do that when we're dealing with our own sin. We can be masters of rationalization, coming up with all sorts of great reasons, even great pious-sounding reasons, why we gave in to sin. That's when we, like the people of Nazareth, need to have an encounter with the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord came. He indeed preached good news to the poor and proclaimed freedom for all of us who are captive to sin. Yet before that good news can have impact and effect, we often need to be clobbered over the head with that rolled-up scroll of Isaiah 
indeed, with the whole counsel of God. Jesus didn't tell the people what they wanted to hear. He tore down their walls of self-righteousness, and He threw two tablets of stone through the windows they used to show off their own works. He told them what they needed to hear, and for that, He is more faithful over God's house as a son than was Moses as a servant. We, too, are servants of God's house, and we seek to serve Him faithfully. Yet we know that we regularly will fail. Our preaching and our teaching and our carrying out of all the duties of our callings as servants of the Word will too often be walls rather than windows for the Holy Spirit. And this can occur even when we aren't aware of it, and especially when we're in denial about it. But walls aren't really much of an obstacle for Jesus, are they? Whether walls of wood and brick in upper rooms where disciples hide in fear, or walls of stone that would vainly prevent the Son of the Most High from descending into hell to declare His victory, Jesus can transcend any obstacle. He can even break down those walls that are erected by those of us who would otherwise seek to serve Him. In spite of our shortcomings, the work of Christ's kingdom will prosper according to God's perfect will. We need only trust that He who has overcome sin, death, and the power of hell itself will enable us to accomplish that which has been set before us. We may never know with certainty when our preaching is being a wall for the Holy Spirit or when it's being a window. That, in large part, depends on how we present God's Word, but it also depends upon how others receive it, with hearts of hardened stone, or with hearts that have already been crushed and are despairing over sin. But we also know that without any doubt, the Holy Spirit's work will be accomplished, even in others, without our reason or strength, and without any merit or worthiness in us. I very much like the title of this year's Theological Convocation, and I hope it's not being presumptuous or contrary of me to offer another architectural analogy here. Maybe it's just me, but I find that walls are indeed difficult to penetrate, and windows can be very cumbersome to climb through. Yet our Lord and our crucified Savior, whose body could not be held by the stone walls of the tomb, nor be kept from those He loved by the walls of their hiding place, He tells us that He is the door for the sheep, and that they who enter through Him will be saved. Through Him they will come in, and go out, and there they will find good pasture where they will have life and have it to the full. That is where we are to fix our eyes in the synagogue. That is where we are to marvel. That is where we are to speak well of Him. I close with these words of encouragement, which the Holy Spirit provided to St. John, a disciple loved by Jesus every bit as much as He loves each of you. St. John applied them in sustaining a struggling pastor and congregation in his own lifetime. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you.
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Rejoice then, dear and holy brothers. We do share a heavenly calling, and it is Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, in whom we hold fast our confidence, and in whom we boast of our hope. God grant it for his sake. Amen.